Well, we face many challenges as we seek to walk with the Lord and follow Him in this world. One of the many biblical challenges we live with as Christians is a tension that we find in Scripture. It's the tension between resting in the security that we have in Christ. It is a security that is not due to our works in any way. We don't merit this at all, the assurance that we can have in the Lord. It is through our faith in Him alone. That's one side of what Scripture emphasizes, but we have to balance that with the tension of what we find on the other side, the teaching on the necessity and the importance of doing good works. So on one hand, our works do not make us acceptable to God, nor do our works keep us in a state of being acceptable to God. That's all by grace through faith. Yet at the same time, true Christians are commanded to do good works. But the works that we do are all for the purpose of not getting God to accept us. They're for the purpose of bringing glory to the Lord and for pleasing the Lord and as well for the purpose of manifesting to the world who we are, that we belong to Him. Now, there's another way to capture these two sides more with theological terms. It's justification and sanctification. Justification, as we've learned more than once along the way, refers to the standing that we have before God. That is, it captures the fact that we are forgiven of our sin and we are accepted by God. We are justified. And that justification is by faith alone and not by any works on our part. Now, on that side of it, our justification, there are many verses that touch on that. For example, in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 28, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, that's making the statement of our position in Christ, we are justified. Verse 28, as the thought, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. My favorite on this topic is Romans 5.1. I ponder it a lot. We have been justified by faith. And because of that, to describe being accepted by God differently, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's justification. But the other side is sanctification. That describes our being set apart to the Lord to grow in holiness as we serve Him and to mature spiritually. Now, there is an aspect of sanctification being set apart that does happen at the moment of our salvation, the moment of our justification. At that moment, uh, we are certainly set apart unto Him, and that's what is referenced in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Uh, He's talking to the Corinthians, saved people, saying, you were washed, you were cleansed of your sin, in other words. You were sanctified, meaning you were set apart to the Lord at that moment. You were justified, accepted by the Lord and forgiven in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But our sanctification is also a process. We're set apart unto the Lord the moment we come to Christ, but it is a process that continues all of our lives as we grow in holiness, as we grow in what it means to live a life that pleases the Lord. 
And so there are verses that touch on that as well. Romans 6, verse 19, Paul writes to the believers in the church at Rome to say that here's your responsibility in this. You need to present your members, meaning the members of your body, the members of your humanness, everything about you, your mind, everything. Present yourself as slaves to righteousness, and as you do that, it's resulting in more sanctification, being set apart, being more holy unto the Lord. Now, in the ongoing part of this sanctification, in the ongoing process then, our works are important. We must exercise our will to choose to do good works, such as the work of battling sin every day, the works of serving the Lord, the works that are related to what it means to love others and serve others. Now, the Lord certainly is the one who enables us to do good works. He empowers us by His Spirit and His Word to do those works. But yet, we are responsible to choose to do them, and that's called obedience. Now, these two doctrines, justification and sanctification, are distinct, and yet they're never to be separated because if someone is truly justified then that person will seek to grow in sanctification then in their daily life from then on. Now, one verse that gives us actually both sides of this, or a passage, I should say, is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul confirms both sides there. Here's one side, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of any works, so that no one may boast. So no works... Except verse 10, once we're saved by grace through faith, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And what's interesting is this verse goes on to say that God has even prepared those works that we are going to do beforehand, before we were ever born, before the foundation of the world. Now, we also find both sides of what I'm talking about this morning in the book that we're studying here on Sunday mornings. That's why I brought it all up. We find both sides in 1 Thessalonians. If you're visiting with us, we're going through 1 Thessalonians on Sunday morning. We're in chapter 5. For example, in chapter 1, we found Paul celebrating the justification side, the faith side of the believers in Thessalonica the very faith by which they were justified. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, the word of God, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. In other words, they, they were busy proclaiming truth, and in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth. People have heard about the fact that they had come to Christ through saving faith. They were justified. And yet, in this book, the apostle also gives commands. We are to obey these commands. These are commands to do good works of various kinds. Now, it is the command side of this letter that we specifically arrived at last Sunday in our study. Last Sunday, we looked at chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And there you'll remember that the Apostle Paul was focusing on the members of the church, otherwise known as the sheep, and how they should think rightly about the leadership and submit to the leadership of the church, known as the shepherds. And as well, in that passage, Paul addressed the need for all in the body to pursue 
and guard the unity in the church and peace in the church. Now, all of that was couched in some terms in verse 12 that represent a friend, Paul, giving help to some friends, the people in Thessalonica. You'll remember the wording in verse 12 was something like this, we request of you, brethren, we ask that you do these things. There was some authority involved. It was more than just a simple request, but it was veiled in in that, that request word. But today, in verses 14 and 15, we come to a set of stronger commands. In these verses, Paul moves on to exhorting the believers, commanding the believers concerning how they are to interact with and respond to various individuals, both within the congregation and outside the congregation. And though what he mentions are responsibilities that are commonly thought to be the responsibilities of the shepherds, the shepherds need to be doing these things, We're going to see that he's writing this to the church. These are duties that are delegated to all the members of the church. Here's how our passage begins, verse 14. He doesn't say, we request of you, brethren. He makes it stronger. He says, we urge you, brethren. He still says, brethren, talking to the brothers and sisters, so that confirms that the whole church is being addressed here. But urge conveys something that's more authoritative. So that's where we are, verses 14 and 15. And we find in these verses two requirements related to the various interactions that church members may face with other people. Today, we're only going to delve into the first requirement that's found in verse 14. It's this requirement, number one, that of personal involvement. There are situations that come up within the church family where the members must see their responsibility of personal involvement. In any local church, there are going to to be individuals who are struggling, who are facing specific struggles. And it is the responsibility of each member of the church to get involved with those struggling Believers. Now, first of all, we find here what's expected in specific situations. Specific situations. That's verse 14. Here we see these different types of struggling sheep, different types of situations. There are three types of struggling sheep here that are mentioned. That each of the healthy sheep in the church needs to sense this responsibility to get involved with. And because there are three different types of struggling believers, there are three differing approaches that are presented as the kind of involvement that is necessary. Now, as we look at them, I want you to keep in mind that these commands related to these three approaches to these three different types of sheep, they're all put in the present tense form, which means these are ongoing and perpetual duties that we have. They never stop. So here's the first type of spiritually struggling person and the appropriate response that goes with it. The first one he mentions is this group, the unruly. The unruly. And the approach is admonish them. Admonish them. Now that present tense verb, admonish, 
is a word that we saw last week in verse 12, and I pointed out to you then, it's a compound term that means to literally place into the mind. But as I explained it to you, there are nuances that are included in this verb admonish. It's the nuance of teaching, correcting, warning, all of which are aimed at changing someone's conduct. So to admonish someone, that may involve a rebuke of that person, of their wrongdoing, their sin. It may involve a warning to someone to be on guard against some sin and wrongdoing. It may well as include instruction then as as to what is right. So to summarize, to admonish someone means to urge that individual to change their wrong thinking and their wrong behavior. Now, in our verse, the wrong thinking and the wrong behavior that needs to change is captured in that term, unruly. You can also translate that word idle, the idle, to walk in idleness. You can translate it to be apathetic, even negligent. The basic meaning of the word is interesting because it was used in a military context as well in Paul's day. The basic meaning is to be out of order, not out of order like a vending machine, but out of order uh, in the way you're supposed to walk in order. In the military, it'd be used to describe a soldier who was not marching in an orderly manner in the line, getting out of step. They would even use it of a soldier who was not performing their duty at all. Over time, it just came to mean any kind of disorderly living, someone not following through with their responsibilities. So how would that get manifested in the church? Well, it might manifest itself in people not being faithful to serve in the church with their giftedness, their spiritual gifts and talents. That's an unruly person then. It's manifested in someone not faithfully giving financially to support the church. Failing to support the church leadership would be included. Perhaps only attending sporadically and no commitment there. That's also included in this idea of idleness or disorderliness or unruliness. And the problem is it doesn't just stay there many times. It progresses on to simmering anger in a person's heart where they become contentious And finally, even more overt acts of rebellion. If not dealt with, these people then become bitter. There's a quote from Pastor MacArthur on that that I found, a man who's been in the ministry many years. They can become criticizing bench warmers and eventually rebels who undermine church leadership to justify their insubordination. Both are obviously divisive. So it is a problem, unruliness in a person's life. Now, I mentioned to you one nuance of the term unruly is this idea of idleness, the sin of idleness. That sin has already been addressed, has been addressed in 1 Thessalonians, back in chapter 4, verse 11. He wrote to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business, work with your hands, just as we commanded you. In 2 Thessalonians, he goes into even more detail about this and gives them a picture of a rainbow to think about 
I don't know where that came from. I just I saw that up there, and I'm going, that's, that's not in my notes. I don't know what that is. But I had to work it in somehow, you know. Where were we? Uh, in 2 Thessalonians, he goes into more detail about this issue. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, an idle life. And by keep away, it means don't let that person influence you in their sin. Our passage tells us we are to admonish that person instead. But in 2 Thessalonians, it is the same Greek term. And other translations do translate it the disorderly or those who are walking in idleness. Verse 11 in 2 Thessalonians uses the same Greek term again. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. Same Greek term, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Other translations, again, have disorderly there or walking in idleness. Overall, it's referring to people whose lives are marked by a lack of discipline, and therefore they end up being negligent in some way, negligent of fulfilling their duties and their responsibilities. Now, in the Thessalonian church, one specific issue that may have certainly contributed to this idleness had to do with eschatology. You know, we studied that earlier in the book, the doctrine of the future and the return of Christ. There was confusion over the return of Christ. Some believers were neglecting their earthly duties and just sitting back and waiting for the Lord to come. But whether it's for that reason or other reasons, neglecting, fulfilling responsibilities still happens. It's really for a variety of reasons. Believers, for example, can become so focused on wrong priorities. They can become so focused on recreation or hobbies or other things that are important to them that they neglect biblical duties. What are the clear-cut biblical duties? Well, just in general, it's things like this. Starts in the home. Fathers are expected to work hard to provide for their families, not be idle. But they're expected to seek to lead their family spiritually as well. Mothers are expected to meet the needs of the home and the children and to do it in a gracious and loving way. Students in school are expected to study and work hard to do their best. Employees are expected to work hard at their jobs and to do it with integrity and be known for working in an honest and faithful way. All Christians are expected to be faithful in attending and supporting and ministering in the local church. Those are just the basic daily family and ministry duties. And when they're neglected, the gospel ends up being disgraced in the world. So back to the command. The command here is for other believers to come around that person and admonish them, to urge them to do what is right, to do their duty, instead of neglecting what God has told them to do. And again, it's written to each member of the church. Each member may be called upon to admonish another member. That's exactly what Paul told the believers at Rome, the church in Rome, that they were able to do. He was confident of it. Romans 15, verse 14, My brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are able to admonish one another. You know enough truth of what is right and wrong to un- admonish unruly believers. 
You can fulfill this admonishing ministry in the church. But that's not the only kind of struggling person in the church. The verse goes on to mention a second type of struggling believer and the appropriate approach. They're called the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. That's a different issue. Different issue than the first one, and therefore a different approach. It says, encourage the faint-hearted. That faint-hearted term can be translated the timid, the anxious, the discouraged. There is one translation that renders it feeble-minded, and that's a little misleading because English terms change over the centuries, and that term kind of conjures up the implication of some sort of mental deficiency, and that's not what the word means in Greek. It it literally means having a small soul to be little-souled. So it's a way to refer to people who find it hard to find strength and encouragement in their souls when they're facing some kind of trial or difficulty. They are easily discouraged. They're easily worried. And therefore, they're in danger of giving up. Now, obviously, not all believers in the church are like that. You have believers who are at the other extreme. There are Christians who are quite bold. They boldly embrace the challenges of the Christian life and what it means to follow Christ in this pagan world we live in, in this culture. They're unafraid of the persecution that could come. They are willing to put their lives on the line for the truth. But in contrast to that, the faint-hearted are different. These are the ones that easily become fearful to think about persecution even. Even though, by the way, we're told in Scripture to expect it, right? We've seen that in 1 Thessalonians as well, chapter 3. He told them, you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. Indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we're going to suffer affliction. Peter says the same thing. Don't be surprised when these fiery trials come up on you. Jesus told his disciples the same thing. If they've hated me, they'll hate you. But the faint-hearted struggle with that. They struggle with being fearful when it comes to the possibility of being persecuted for their faith. They struggle with other things. They may struggle with dealing just with the changes that come in life. They fear the unknown They want their life to be risk-free. They want ministry to be risk-free. They want everything to be safe and absolutely secure. And they get faint-hearted if it's not that way. You see, we have both courageous and faint-hearted people, perhaps in the church, in any church. I believe that's one implication of the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. We're familiar with that parable, you know, it's the parable of the seed that goes out, it falls on four different soils. The first three represent unbelievers, the hard-packed soil, the soil filled with stones and rocks, the soil filled with thorns and thistles, the seed falls on those soils, nothing really lasting happens, but there's a fourth soil, represents true believers. Verse 8 of Matthew 13 says, other seeds fell on the good soil and yielded a crop. But different, kind, different levels of uh, fruitfulness, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. 
So Jesus explained that parable, and when he got to the fourth soil explanation, he says in verse 23, and the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, that's the man, the person, who hears the word, understands it, receives it, and so they bear fruit. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. It doesn't mean that those are the only numbers involved. Some 80, some 50, some 40, some 30, some 20, some 10. There's at least one orange on the tree, you know, they're truly saved. It's the picture of the differences in giftedness, the differences in strength, the differences in divine opportunities, the difference in knowledge of the Word, the differences in courage, the differences in maturity and so on that exist among true believers. And in a local church, not every Christian is the same. We're each different. We're going to attain differing levels of maturity. So in that fourth fourth soil, the faint-hearted believers would be in that lower fruitfulness category, at least on this issue. And no doubt, many situations can potentially prompt faint-heartedness, can potentially prompt discouragement in someone. It can happen due to adverse situations and challenges in life. It can happen, faint-heartedness and discouragement can happen because of an individual's consciousness and awareness of their own sin and failure. It can happen when someone's being criticized or attacked in some way. Any trial can cause someone to become faint-hearted and discouraged and then even in despair as they think about what's required to live the Christian life. The fact is, all of us, any one of us, will fall into this this condition at least at some moment along the way. So what do faint-hearted people need? Well, admonish them. I just admonish everybody. (laughs) That's my gift. No, they don't need to be admonished. They don't need to be rebuked. They don't need to be warned. It says here they need to be encouraged. That's cheered up. This is a wonderful ministry in the body, the ministry of encouragement to faint-hearted people. It can include words of understanding and sympathy when you, when you listen to someone genuinely and you convey that, that you get it. This is a hard situation. It includes helpful reminders of biblical promises in Scripture, of course, promises that are wisely and carefully and lovingly and in a timely way applied. No doubt, the ministry of encouragement includes supporting that person in prayer. Certainly, such struggling souls who fear the worst, which they tend to do, need to be reminded of the kind of Savior Christ is, as we heard earlier, a gentle Savior. I love what he says about himself in Matthew 12, 20, when he quotes the Old Testament, and he, and he says uh, that this one that was prophesied, a battered reed, he will not break off. A smoldering wick, he's not going to put it out. It's not what he does. And again, the point is that it is the responsibility of each member to do this ministry as well, to encourage those who are the faint-hearted so that they don't lose heart 
There are a lot of examples in Scripture, but one that comes to mind is just the interaction between Jonathan and his close friend David. David was disheartened, deeply disheartened over all that Israel's King Saul was doing and just the evil that kept coming from King Saul. And so Jonathan went to David. Keep in mind that King Saul was Jonathan's father. But Jonathan went to his friend David And at first, he encouraged him just by seeking him out to spend time with him. But as well, he he spoke truth to David about the Lord. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel 23, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David. He he sought him out. And he encouraged him. Another translation says he, he strengthened his hand in the Lord, in God. Jonathan restored David's confidence in the Lord. He didn't do what many people do by default. When they run across somebody who's struggling and going through a hard time, what's the default setting in our culture? What what do we tell people? Oh, it's all going to turn out okay. It doesn't always turn out okay. Sometimes it gets worse. Jonathan didn't do that, but he did restore his confidence in the Lord. And we can do this. We can provide this ministry to someone who is faint-hearted and discouraged. We can, with our own joy, even cheer up the joyless, disheartened one. But there's another kind of person in the body that we're going to interact with. And our passage calls them the weak. And here the approach is to help them. Now, the term weak doesn't refer to physically weak, you know, physically sick, and certainly that's, that's a trial as well, and certainly we ought to care about those who are struggling physically and physically ill, and we can give them whatever practical support we can give, we can pray for them. I'm just saying that's not the group that's addressed here. Here, Paul has in mind being spiritually weak in some way, even morally weak. The fact is, truly converted people can be any of these, unruly, faint-hearted, and they can be morally weak. They can be spiritually weak. Some do struggle in the fight to control the fleshly appetites of the body and the fleshly impulses of the mind. It's just a great struggle. And they're weak in that way. And thus could yield to immoral temptations. Even though the expectations in Scripture are clear in this area, morally, God expects moral purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, we saw it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, that you abstain from sexual immorality of any kind. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Purity, that's God's clear expectation of His people, but those who are weak find great struggle here. They find it difficult to resist worldly pressure. They find it more difficult to resist entanglement in ungodly relationships, more difficult to abandon some sin that's a struggle That's one way it could be exemplified. Another kind of spiritual weakness is just this 
being fragile when it comes to faith. A person who's frequently just beset by doubts. They struggle more than others with doubts. Struggle more than others with what it means to really trust God. Some struggle with this. They have oversensitive consciences, over-scrupulous consciences. And so they end up being fearful when it comes to the idea of exercising Christian liberty in some way on doubtful matters, the gray areas of life we call them. That's what makes Romans 14 so important. Really, Romans 14 verse 1 all the way through chapter 15 verse 6, there are several sermons on the website on this going into the details of the principles that we need to live with to face the gray areas of life, those things that are our choices we can make as far as lifestyle even, where the Bible doesn't say clearly, thou shalt or thou shalt not. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, those three chapters, same thing. And if a person's faith is weak, and their understanding of theology and how it bridges into these areas, how you'd connect the dots and apply your theology, that person ends up struggling then to enjoy freedom in Christ, some more than others, even though living in freedom is something encouraged in Scripture. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. When he wrote to the Colossians, he, he mentioned more details related to this. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 and 20 through 23 about avoiding legalistic influences in your life. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. They're all things that were just mere shadows the substance is Christ. If you've died with Christ to so the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees and rules and regulations such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? They all refer to things destined to perish. Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion. A person can appear to be pious cause of self-abasement and denial and self-treatment of the body, severe treatment. But at the end of the day, it says clearly, it's all of no value against fleshly indulgence, which is the real problem. But yet, there are believers who fear this whole idea. They struggle with the idea of not living with a lot of imposed rules and regulations. Some struggle with this. They, they're weak because of their sensitive conscience over their past. They, they struggle getting past their past and, and, and the sins that they've committed in the past, and they even tend to perceive things as being sin, even though it's not sin. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7 touches on something like that. Some eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. There's another way this idea of weakness is found in Scripture, and it's more the way the world views a Christian as being weak. Because the Christian is one that doesn't necessarily 
have recognition because of their social status or their financial status or anything else. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following, it's very encouraging that God says, well, you know, God doesn't look at it that way, the way the world does. God has chosen the weak things of the world, the ones that are the nobodies, if that's what it means, to shame the things which are strong so that no man may boast before God. So those who are weak in the world's eyes due to financial and educational and opportunity restraints still may fit in this category of needing this ministry in their lives of help. Commentator Gene Green says this, those whom society walks over and puts down are lifted up and given support, spiritual support by the church. Here's my point. Whatever the cause of the weakness, the struggle, the approach to those struggling is to help them. Now, the verb rendered help literally means to lay hold, when you apply it to people, it means to lay hold of someone to hold them up. It's the idea of supporting another person by by keeping yourself involved in their life. I came across a real poetic way to render it. It's something like this. Let the strong put their arms around the weak and hold them up. You see, the weak need to be assured of something. They need to be assured by other members in the body that they're not forgotten. They need to be assured that they're not looked down upon and despised because of their struggle. Because of their particular frailty. Because of their particular sense of helplessness. And once again, the point here is that each person in the church family is to be on the lookout for the weak amongst them. And take an interest in them, pay attention to them, and remain loyal to them. Leon Morris writes, It is good for weak souls to know that there are others who are with them, who will cleave to them in the difficult moment, who will not forsake them. The weak are not simply to be abandoned, but made to feel that they belong still. And that they have strong friends, strong comrades in Christ. What a wonderful ministry. So in summary, the stronger sheep are to come alongside the weaker sheep, establish close relationships with them, provide help that they need toward righteousness, any necessary accountability, close accountability because of their battle and their struggle, any necessary support to help keep them away from sin. All of that is under this heading of the personal involvement in ministry in the body that God gives to each of us. We've seen what's expected in specific situations, that of the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak, but he also mentions, second, what's expected in all situations. All situations. The instructions that we've just gone over concerning struggling members are rounded off now with this general command. Verse 14 concludes, be patient with everyone. Why does the Bible have to add that? Because we never struggle with impatience or frustration or being irritated with anybody. What was wrong with those Thessalonians? No, it's easy to become frustrated, angry, even discourage ourselves with other sheep 
who are chronically struggling in some way. So yes, much patience is needed. The term literally means to be long-tempered, or we could say long-suffering. And that begs a question, right? How long? Long. This is that quality that refuses to give yourself over rapidly and easily and quickly to anger or frustration in those moments of irritation. It's an even-tempered response, living with even-tempered response. It's the even-tempered response of the one who is tolerant of others. So you can see this, this virtue is the opposite of the irritability and frustration that characterizes so many relationships. Now back to the Thessalonians, that church was diverse in many ways. They obviously had these three types of people, or Paul wouldn't, written, wouldn't have written to them. They had the unruly, they had the faint-hearted, they had the weak. But there was diversity for other reasons. This membership was made up of slaves, freed slaves, people freeborn. There was a great diversity of ethnicities there. The congregation was made up of Greeks, Macedonians, Romans, Jews, others. And so the mix of people like that would have undoubtedly presented occasions in which patience was greatly needed. And it's still true today. Still, It's true of our church. Now, we know something from Scripture about patience and bearing with people who frustrate us and irritate us and try us. We know from Scripture that patience is an aspect, an ingredient of agape love. 1 Corinthians 13.4, you're familiar with it. If you hadn't read it, you've heard it in weddings. 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. Love is kind in others. We know from Scripture that this patience is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. There's only one fruit, it's singular, but it's like a cluster of grapes. There's one fruit, one cluster, with a bunch of little grapes. So the one fruit of the Spirit is made up of these grapes, love, joy, peace, patience. Patience is evidence that the Spirit of God is working in someone's life. The bottom line is this. This is God's general expectation of all of us in all situations. And there are many verses that help us with this and comment on it. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, show tolerance for one another in love. It all fits together. Patience, tolerance, love, kindness, graciousness. Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, if you want a concise description of the identity of every believer, here it is. There's a threefold identity identity of every believer. This is who you are. You are the chosen of God. You are the holy ones set apart unto Him. You are the beloved ones, the ones He eternally loves. That's your identity. Because of that, here's how you manifest it to the world. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. This is spoken to preachers and teachers. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, but with great patience. So whether dealing with the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, facing differences due to ethnicity or social status or any other reason, patience must be exercised at all times toward everyone. Even my kids, yes, even your children. And we have a model to follow. It's the way God shows patience to each one of us, right? If you need help in this way, think about how God treats you. God shows great patience with all His sheep. The Lord is slow to anger. Slow. 1 Timothy 1.16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience. I mean, here's Paul saying, I'm the worst of sinners anyway. But there's a reason for that. So the world could look could see, understand what real patience looks like. Just look how Jesus has been patient with me. All of that is the requirement of how we interact with various individuals. What's required is personal involvement in specific situations and in all situations. And next week, we'll delve into the second requirement There's a situation that requires personal constraint. Let me just leave you with two cautions about all this. Caution number one, be discerning. I mean, it only makes sense. There's differing, struggling Christians that are mentioned here. And there's different ministry approaches that are commanded. So we need to understand which one we're dealing with. We don't help the unruly and admonish the faint-hearted and encourage the weak. God is very specific in what He has said here. But here's the challenge. The reality is that the unruly and the faint-hearted and the weak, they may all exhibit similar behavior at times. So it's only through establishing a very caring, personal relationship with someone and involvement in their life and listening and asking questions and praying for God's wisdom that we could ever discern the difference and know how to minister appropriately. But be careful about that. And second, another caution is be gentle. I mean, especially when it comes to admonishment, great care is needed here with that. To admonish doesn't mean be judgmental. It doesn't mean to be critical of someone in in this self-righteous, superior manner. It's a warning against danger, but it's out of genuine love and care and concern for that person. The way Paul ministered in Ephesus, he told the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 31, this is what he did for three years, night and day, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears, though. They knew he loved them. And certainly Ephesians 4.29 applies to this because all of this is going to involve proclamation and verbal speaking, communication at some level. 
Make sure that you let no unwholesome word, that word unwholesome means rotting, no rotting word come out of your mouth. There's no mouthwash for bad breath that'll solve this problem. This is a heart issue. Unwholesome words have to do with volume and tone and the words chosen and so forth. But only such a word as is good for edification, building up according to the need of the moment so that it gives grace to those who hear. So no doubt this teaching does not grant just a license to everybody to go around and give everybody a piece of their mind. Hey, I'm just admonishing. No, your goal is to honor the Lord. Your goal is to minister to that person, not just spout off your opinion. And after it was all said and done, I, someone after the first service mentioned a, uh, a third caution here. So I'm going to add it. It's a good one. But I had to come up with a way of saying it so it fits my pattern here. So be humble. This talks about the other side of all this. You might be the unruly, faint-hearted, or weak person, and someone in this body is going to come to you. Be willing to receive that from the Lord. Be humble. Father, we thank you for this short passage, this one verse that is so full with practical help of what it means to live in a church family and what you require from us. Lord, we don't want to be unruly, negligent, not fulfilling our duties and responsibilities in the home, church, everywhere. And Lord, we confess that moments we may be, and in moments we're certainly discouraged and faint-hearted. We certainly have individual struggles, and we're weak in some way. So help us all to be willing to help each other. Help us all to be humble to be able to receive that help. I do pray for the person here who can't even say they're really part of this family because they've never come to Christ in humble submission to say, I need to be saved from my sin. I believe I'm weak. Forgive me of my sin and set me on a path now to learn what it means to love and serve you. I pray you'd save that person. Open their hearts to believe. We ask all this in the name of our Savior. Amen.